everyone, and welcome to the weekly hoon. The hoon is the plural of the kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey, and with us from Tamaki Makoto is Peter Bale. Great to see you, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Will, you, will we be discussing the Auckland Tamaki Makaro election and the others? Yeah, well, let's launch into that straight away. Um, big news today, Viv Beck, the head well, Is of- it big news or is it just bloody inevitable? And, and also, she keeps her name on the bloody ballot paper. So as Matthew Hooten pointed out on the Herald today, we'll probably get 7,000 votes, thus <laughs> buggering up the rest of the right. And completely of the failing sense. to achieve her aim, which was to avoid splitting the centre-right vote. Yeah, yeah. or what she said was, yeah. yeah. It's, I don't know. So I've been, I, as you know, I thought... I thought um, uh, Leo Malloy was was moderately entertaining for a bit of a nutter, but um, yeah, we're, we're we're sort of effectively down to two, it would seem. Yeah, Fesso Collins as the Labour mm. Green candidate and uh, Wayne Brown. No, well, no, no, no. Wait a second. Fesso Collins is not the Labour candidate. There is no Labour candidate. He's an independent candidate, <laughs> but he's backed by Labour and, and yeah, the Greens. Yeah, Isn't yeah. that right? No, no, good fun. Yep. No, you're quite right. Um, that's I mean, I, I, I did, you know, he is, I mean, I am actually kind of surprised that um, Labour didn't, didn't put in a candidate, but I'm, I'm not really familiar with quite how that how, how that all worked out. Yeah, it's it's more fluid at a council level, um, but I'm quite interested in this year's council elections for a bunch of reasons. A, I think local government is much more important than a lot of people in New Zealand think. Uh, Absolutely, and, and, yeah. And that's because increasingly where the biggest decisions and problems are around uh, housing, transport, climate change, the big deciders, actually, about where houses are zoned and where the roads go and where the buses go mm. and mm. whether or not car parks are there are made at council level. And because of a democratic deficit we have where the... The percentage of voters amongst homeowning old people and particularly Pakeha people is much, much, much higher yeah. than for young uh, Māori, Pacifica and um, new migrant voters, particularly those who are renting. So the risk here is that um, in the last elections, the last council elections in 2019, there were a whole crop of young progressive sort of green-leaning pro-urban development um a pro-tactical urbanism councillors who got in. But now we have a backlash going on with uh, yeah. against a bunch of things, including co-governance, obviously, and the three, three waters. waters. Yep. Yep. But also the um, issue of uh, the government telling the councils with its national policy statement on urban development and then an upgrade of that with uh, a move with densification to force councils to allow three-storey other than in Hoon Bay, of course. Oh, not Hoon Bay. And no. possibly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Says our Hoon Bay correspondent. Um, because, um, and this is the thing, what the government is doing is trying to solve what is effectively a, an infrastructure funding issue by simply ordering the councils to do things. Now, they, the, the government essentially writes the law and everyone's supposed to be doing what the government says. However... One of the problems here is that the councils say they can't afford it, um, they're not allowed to raise uh, more debt under the council-run local government funding agency. And so you get this uh, game almost of passive-aggressive, yeah, where the councils say, yeah, we'll do what you say, 
and then nothing yeah. happens. <laughs> no. and, and you get a quiet quitting, if you like, of councils on the whole government agenda. And we saw that this week with the Christchurch Council deciding to vote completely against the densification. And the Auckland Council, too, has essentially stripped out the juiciest areas for urban development, yeah. including yeah. urban bays, as you've got. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, not only that, but most of Ponsonby, Grey Lynn, Mount Eden... Um, and Turning the rest of it into a into a congested hellhole. Yeah, and actually defeating the whole purpose, which is to have the densification close to your centre of the city. Is exactly. Creating yeah. the donut where the the medium density is out in you know Mount Albert and New Lynn and places like that, not in the centre. And it's a pity because um, you know what we need is lots and lots of these you know three, four, five story apartment buildings in townhouses close mm. to the main roads and things, and the deciders will be the councils and the mayors, and that's why I'm quite interested in Yeah, no, I think it is really, and I hadn't realised, you know, I think Wellington has single transferable vote, Auckland has first past the post. Um, it's a very interesting set of sort of differences, and as you say, there is this kind of pull, particularly a push and pull between central government and, um, and, and local government at the moment, and this guy, uh, Wayne Brown, sort of sets himself up as a technocratic, you know, I get shit done sort of thing. Um, is But he's not the citizens and residents, or what used to be citizens and ratepayers, I remember. But, you know, he's he's just, he's sort of a technocratic proposition, whereas Afiso Collins is much more of a kind of uh, party. I mean, even though he's even though he's standing as, the, as an independent, he's much more of a kind of um, social good chap, you know, re representative of the people, particularly, of course, it would be fascinating to have a Pacifica mayor, but um, yeah. just Wayne Brown, I mean, I would have thought that this, particularly given the demographics that you described, Bernard, that um, Wayne Brown actually probably has a chance, partly because I suspect it'll be very difficult for Afiso Collins to get the, get the vote out of his... Yeah, I mean, that is one of the concerns, that those people who voted for Phil Goff in, in the elections last time... Remember, he was up against John Tamahiti as well, um, mm. that uh, he, he might not get those votes out. And because it's not a, a typical election day where everyone turns up to a sausage sizzle and mm. marks their cross on the, on the bit of paper, it's all done by mail. Actually, you know, getting, those, uh, getting that mail out to voters, then getting it back in mm. again is not as easy as it should be. And uh, you're right, there, there is a risk here uh, for those supporters of Professor Collins that they... There isn't enough um, urgency or excitement now that uh, you know so many of the centre-right candidates have dropped out. And Wayne Brown isn't quite the figure of hate that perhaps uh, um, Leo Malloy might have been for those <coughs> on the centre-left, because Wayne Brown has actually been in favour of Koga. And his um, position on various things um, uh, is not necessarily easy to categorise as uh, he's just another Trumpy you know, anti-woke, pro-car... Yeah, no, no, he's not. No, 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 he does it's, But it's a sort of technocratic approach. And you can be damn sure he'll be um, rather against Three Waters, I would imagine, and, and the retention of water care as a, um, as a, as a, as a uh, local government-owned organisation. And he seems to be in favour of the, of the um, moving of Auckland, Auckland um, port. Yeah, I mean, that's popular with everyone except for the port. <laughs> Mm. And all the people who have to use it. Actually, I've had a, had a look at this issue. It is um, 
technically and uh, logistically an enormous issue to shift Auckland Auckland's port somewhere else, yes. let alone to North Absolutely. because it is our largest port. Uh, it is right in the middle of our largest population centre. All of the logistics links and warehousing and rail and road are all set up um, mm. for that port. Yes, you can transfer some of it to Tauranga, um, but not much at all. And actually, the only way you could really move that port out is to put a brand new port at somewhere like the Firth of Thames or mm. in uh, on the Manukau Harbour side. And to do that, you'd basically have to carve a massive trench uh, through the bar mm. and then um, clear it out every six months yeah. uh, and hope that nobody um, gets done over in a storm because that's... And lands in waterproof, yeah. Yeah, it's a nasty little piece of water, that. Mm. And, mm. And yeah, so well, I, think, I think Wayne Brown is one of the critical, and it does seem sensible, this, is to get rid of the double handling of the containers and to, and to use rail straight from the, straight from the waterfront, which does seem, what well, it sounds on the surface of it logical. Yes, until you then have to um, share those railways with all the commuting trains that are now being mm, put on. Mm, God so, forbid. Yeah. Do we still have commuting trains? Yeah, oh, yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, actually, this week was the week when the uh, tunnel, the CRL, um, uh, used, we, we think of it as the city rail link or the, um, uh, the, 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 the circle rail link, but mm. um, it broke through so that it's now a complete tunnel. Uh, there's still an awful lot of um, stuff to be done, but... Uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's really important, these council elections, and I'm going to try and cover them as best best I can, in particular with the, through the lens of whether we get to shift the roads from being uh, car-based roads to cycling and walking and whether we get these um, big projects through. My gut feel, actually, is that uh, there's going to have to be a deal done between government and local government on financing and a political one in which effectively these huge projects like the CBD to the Auckland Rail Link and the Let's Get Wellington moving tunnels get dropped simply because mm. they're too expensive and too slow and the money is used to smooth the way for converting a lot of these roads and motorways. But we'll, we'll see. I'd like to introduce into the conversation... Oh, Jared. Jared yeah. Kerr. G'day, Jared. How are you? Uh, just here we go. Fantastic G'day. to see you, Jared. How are you? you? It's ages since I've seen you. Hello, hello. It has been a while. Yeah, yeah. Are you, you're a civil servant now. Yeah, <laughs> we always were, but it was just uh, hidden by a, a couple of other owners. Yeah, oh, it's great. To, so everyone who doesn't know, uh, Jared Kerr is the chief economist at uh, Kiwi Bank and a. Uh, a friend of the show and um, a fantastic observer of what's happening in the global economy and the local economy. Jared, it's great to see you after a busy old week on the um, economic front. Yeah, a lot going on uh, in the US and locally. Yeah, let's go for Let's start out and come back in again. Uh, with the United States, we had inflation figures on uh, Thursday morning, our time, which, which you know, 0.1% inflation in the month doesn't sound completely disastrous, but it turned out that was much more than the 0.1% fall people were expecting. Mm -hmm. And the core inflation number at 0.6% for the month was double what people were expecting. How did that change the, um, the vibe in, uh, in the United States? Yeah, well, it was pretty instant on those numbers. Um, the market, as you said, had been forecasting or, or expecting uh, a much lower print um, in the in the inflation numbers. Didn't get it, uh, obviously higher. And like you say, the core number is what we sort of focus on as economists. And that came out much stronger. So it looks like inflation is, is a bit more frustrating and persistent. 
And the market took that as meaning that the Fed, you know, has a lot more work uh, to do to get inflation down. So interest rates were up, uh, the curve flattened more, which means, you know, short-term interest rates rose more than long-term interest rates. And the difference between short-term interest rates and long-term interest rates is about 45 basis points negative. Um, that inverted yield curve has been a, a bit of a signal for at least a slowdown and sometimes a recession. So there's a, a big sort of discussion as to whether the US falls into recession next year. A, um, and equity amazing, markets obviously tumbled on that. That is amazing, isn't it? That curve has been negative for quite some time now, yet all of the forecasts are still saying probably not a recession uh, uh, later this year, maybe, maybe next year. But um, do you think that, that uh, this time is different and the, the, the inverted yield curve is not going to cause a recession or lead to a recession? Well, we kind of hope, hope not. Um, but the risks are, are clearly uh, higher and um, central banks globally, not just the Fed, but the RBNZ, RBA, Bank of Canada, ECB, BOE, you, you, you name them all, they're all fighting the same inflationary pressures. And they only know one thing to do, and that is to unwind their QE uh, and lift interest rates. And obviously lifting interest rates quite aggressively. Um, you know, we had the Bank of Canada do 100 basis points on one lift mm-hmm. the other day. Um, you know, the, the, all central banks have, have been quite aggressive on this front. Um, and and that, that, of course, increases the risk of, of significant downturn. And so what, do we th- what do we think about Adrian Orr in that context now? That, you know, do we do we think they've they've been too slow, too fast, too high, or is it about right? I think we can say all central banks were too slow, um, and all central banks, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, did too much. Um, but that's with the benefit of hindsight. At the time, we were all quite worried about how the pandemic mm. was going to play out, so it was justified doing so. But I think the unwind has been a little slow um, in in taking place. Uh, Adrian Orr, don't forget, was one of the first, or say, yeah, RBNZ was one of yeah. the first to, to kick off tightening. Um, so they were six months ahead of um, the RBA and, and Fed and, and others. Uh, so they did get going sooner, um, and the others are playing catch-up. And, and Joe, may I ask before Bernard dives in again on, on the dollar, uh, the US dollar? This is a real, it's a dollar strengthening issue rather than a New Zealand dollar weakening issue. And while there may be a sell-off on the pound for various good reasons, and, and Japan, the yen, the New Zealand dollar isn't being sold off as such, is it? It's just it's just suffering under the strength of a, of, a, of a strong US dollar, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, so when you think of Kiwi dollar, you know, there's there's two parts to that story, and the and the dollar part, you know, the, the US dollar is up twenty percent on the lows of of last year, so it's it's a significant lift in in dollars. Um, and that, again, is because the Fed has turned and become more aggressive and their interest rates are rising. So interest rate differentials between us and the U.S. have, have definitely narrowed. So that puts downward pressure on the Kiwi dollar. Um, so the, the Kiwi has come off quite a lot. I mean, we were in the 70s and now we're um, just under 60 cents um, as mm-hmm. we talk um, good, good today. Time, good time to it's be an exporter. pretty big move. Yeah, good time to be an exporter. But it does mean yeah. that we, we're going to import a bit more inflation. Uh, and we got some numbers this week from GDP. I know it's lagging, but it was slightly better than the market expected, just about what the Reserve Bank had expected. 
And mm. um, it's interesting to see a couple of people have cranked up their um, peak uh, forecast for the official cash rate here. We saw ASB go from 4 to 4.25%, and today ANZ increased their peak from 4 to 4.75%. How yeah. do you see that, um, that picture? Has much changed this week at all? Oh, look, I, I, I've found it surprising that we had... Um, you know, economists changing their views on the GDP report. Um, particularly if you actually look at the GDP report, the the strength came through in tourism, which is fantastic. It's great to see tourists coming back and obviously a pickup in accommodation and eating out and sports and recreation and all that good stuff that, that tourists come here for. That That's really good and that will continue. You know, you you look at household spending and it was down um, 3.2% on the quarter, and that's ugly. That's, that's you know, Kiwi households fighting uh, inflation with uh, reduced purchasing power. Yeah. Is it, is it because of the cost of food going up predominantly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are cutting back on things, right? Mm. Um, and those with debt are paying higher interest on, on top of that, um, and those with houses are seeing their their house prices fall. So confidence is very much linked to housing and, and, and obviously what's going on in the economy more broadly. And consumer confidence, you know, according to the Westpac survey, um, is as low as it's ever been. And that goes back to the 80s. Um, that, that worries me. And what also worries me was that business investment was down on the quarter. Mm-hmm. And the surveys, um, the NZIR QSBO survey is really good um, and it turned early in the year. Um, businesses, their intentions to invest have fallen um, and that really worries me because that, that kills we're at risk of talking ourselves into we at risk of talking ourselves into us. I mean, weirdly, I had a relative come around and visit me today, two relatives, and they said, oh, well, New Zealand, we're in trouble. We're really loaded with debt. And I said, hang on a minute. No, we're not. I, do, I talk to Bernard every week about this. It's 20% of GDP. You know, the UK is 99% of GDP. No, we're not. Yeah. And then the, it's like, where are they getting this? It's extraordinary. Yeah. You know, but, 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 perception, but perception is reality. And, you know, they, they conflate it all. They conflate all the government spending, you know, the government spending announcements, because this government is fairly, uh, you know, fairly frequently uh, uh, announces government spending as the answer to everything. Um, sorry, I've just yeah. turned into Matthew Hooten for a minute there. <laughs> Carry on, Bernard. Um, actually, Jared, on that, on that point of, uh, you know, perception is reality and, um, and how we compare ourselves with the rest of the world, uh, in Europe this week, um, they're really dealing with the pain of a massive increase in their energy prices and electricity prices. <laughs> they're doing extraordinary things like planning to intervene to um, uh, take windfall profits off electricity companies and energy companies and redistribute it. How much of a risk is there of some sort of financial um, crisis or a drama in Europe where... Um, you've got all sorts of people suddenly having to deal with all sorts of margin calls and, you know, uh, banks and various others suddenly discovering people aren't very healthy anymore. Any risk of that, mm. you know, overflowing to us at all? I, I mean, if you look at all our problems, we've all got kind of similar problems. It's high inflation, there's, there's um, really tight labour markets. But I'd rather be in New Zealand than anywhere in Europe at the moment. Geez, so what they are confronting is, is really quite worrisome right mm, the, mm. The, you know this this energy crisis can turn into something quite ugly quite quite quickly very um, very very ugly and that's if you're not careful we'll segue straight into this and, and robert and i were discussing 
you know, global global affairs instead of instead of the economy. But I think I think you're absolutely right. But what would the knock on effects be to New Zealand, though? Or, you know, what are, is that is that a a grey swan on the uh, on the lookout for for New Zealand? Yeah, look, if, it, if, it's, if it's just a slowdown in, in economic activity and maybe a recession for a couple of quarters, then you know that they, they are a, a part of our you know trading partners. You know, for sure, we'll we'll get some. Uh, impact, but most of our trade goes through Asia mm. and China and Australia, right? So, to the extent that it flows through to you know financial markets and and um, we see a uh, you know um, some sort of meltdown, I think the risk is pretty low that, w- that it'll be a financial market um, event. I think it'll be quite an economic uh, mm. crisis, and it shouldn't really flow through to to banks and and spreads and the like. Just but, looking ahead. Um, just looking ahead, Jared, to next week, we've got the Fed um, making its big decision next Wednesday, its time, Thursday morning, our time. Yep. And uh, also we've got, you know, uh, our own Reserve Bank getting ready to do its own things in a few weeks. Uh, and we have the GDP numbers. What's your feeling about, you know, um, the next couple of weeks and what we should watch out for? Yeah, well, the Fed's going to tighten next week, uh, and they'll probably most likely do 75 basis points. But the market is flirting a little bit with the idea that they could come out and do 100. Um, so we'll have to watch that. But I, I think 75, you know, nice and uh, expected, and and uh, it's not so much about next week's decision; it's just where they go over the next year um, or so that the that the markets, you know, playing around with. Um, RBNZ, yep another 50 in October, another 50 in November. We got a 4% cash rate by year end. For me, I think we will have seen enough of a slowdown in consumption and business investment that by the time they come back in February, hopefully that's enough. You know, they've got to 4% and they're happy. Obviously the risk is that they do more. Um, and as you said, some of our competitors are calling for, you know, a lot more uh, tightening coming through. And where we differ is our, our view on, on how core inflation is going to play out. Um, so there's a lot going on in, in just the next couple of weeks. But, you know, we've really got to make our way through the next six months to see, um, you know, how inflation is tracking globally. And just finally, on house prices, uh, which... On what? what? House prices, Peter. We're going to talk about house prices because that's what we do every week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do work for a bank, so oh, fair yeah. call. Absolutely. I mean, you got some balance sheet exposed there. Um, just a little bit. In fact, every New Zealander either has or wants to have some balance sheet exposure on. And uh, we got some numbers out of the Real Estate Institute this week, which are the first sort of real numbers for August on actual sales and actual prices. There's lots mm. of other noise around um, from various other people about, you know, valuations and uh, uh, offer prices and all sorts of things. But for me, it's the REINZ numbers that really tell you what's going mm-hmm. on. Yeah. What did you make Agreed. of those? Uh, a little bit mixed. Um, we always have to throw a grain of salt at winter numbers, um, particularly when we're comparing to to last year and, and periods of, of COVID. Um, we, I think we'll get a much better handle on, on how the housing market's actually playing out um, as we go through spring and into and into summer. That's where we'll get a lot more activity and a, mm-hmm. and a much better read. Um, our view is, is that house prices keep falling. Um, we think we'll see a, a 13, 15% decline in, in total, which sounds 
pretty big, but it basically takes us back to the start of 2021 uh, as to where prices are. So it's it's a correction, but geez, it comes off some pretty extraordinary gains. Um, when we when we look at you know all the indicators out there, there's been a significant uplift in supply, which is a real positive. Mm. Mm. 41,000 dwellings were were uh, produced last year. Obviously, some were demolished to do that, but it's a that's a very high number. Uh, I think it's the highest we've seen since the 70s in, in terms of per population um, dwellings coming through. So that's great. That's great news. Um, but, you know, the days to sell and, and these sorts of readings are, are pretty high. Mm. Um, and I, I think there's, you know, there's a, there's a, a seller's price and there's a, a buyer's bid. And I think the spread between the two has, has widened. And to get things sold, I, I think the sellers have to have to come down and, and, and meet the bid. And, that, and that's where we get that 15% decline from. It's just that, uh, you know, buyers now don't have the FOMO or, or you know, fear of missing out. They, they've actually got time on we, this We side. know what that is. We're not, we're not old people. We know <laughs> FOMO means FOMO. Very much. I, had to, I had to remind myself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there is an opposite to FOMO, which is FOOP, fear yes. of overpaying. Mm. And there's a bit of that around, I, I think. And everyone's sort of looking to see, you know, when it bottoms out so that they can um, somehow pick that perfect moment where they're grabbing the knife and not getting sliced. They grab the handle instead. Mm. Um, uh, um, I must say my reading of uh, particularly the bleeding edge markets of Auckland City were that um, there is a little bit of an improvement in the volumes going through. And, and also um, we're hearing reports from mortgage brokers and from agents who are conflicted. <laughs> that, um, They're as know, honest as the day is long. Uh, yeah, but, but if you ask them all the same question and get a big enough number <coughs> and compare what, with what they said a month ago, you can sort of dredge something useful out of it. Um, and they're saying that there's a bit of an improvement in the mood and it's not just the weather. So do you think we're anywhere close to the bottom in some of these, you know, these, these bleeding edge markets, um, Joe? Yeah, I mean, Wellington's been hit the hardest in terms of um, the decline in price so far. And Auckland's, you know, coming in a, a close second. And we're starting to see, obviously, um, declines in the regions as well. Auckland and Wellington tend to, to lead. Um, so, yeah, there, there are signs of, of improvement. But it's, like I said, I... It, it's winter months. Um, I want to see what's happening throughout spring and summer, um, and and we we just think that that there's still enough of that fear of overpaying, as you say, that we'll see you know prices continue mm. to 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 fall uh, for the rest of the year. But uh, hopefully things bounce back uh, as we expect next year. Fantastic, Jared. Really appreciate you coming on uh, today and um, taking a lap around the world of the global economy. <laughs> wonderful to see you. And um, next time I'm up in And it's time we had that. We had another dinner, Jared. Absolutely. Yeah. Book it in. Okay. I will. See you later. Take care. Thank you. Speaking of speaking of dinner, there's 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 uh, Professor Robert Patman. How are you? Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. No, I, did a, I made a slight, well, not all the time it was a mistake, but I, I may have used, I used a word in my spin-off thing this week that I, that I, you know, of course, as I always do, got some pointy head, very sensible pointy head, saying that I, I, <clears throat> I described the um, uh, Ukrainian push over the last 10 days as a salient, as creating a salient 
And this person said, well, it's not really a salient, which is a three-sided sort of, I did describe it as a thumb rather than a finger because it's not that mm. deep. But um, Robert, we have seen them take, you know, tremendous territory. Yeah. Uh, what are the risks of that? Or do they just move on? I mean, it, it also seems to have put a bit of a, um, a bit of lead in the pencil of some of their Western European uh, backers who perhaps haven't been backing them as aggressively as they perhaps ought to have, such as Germany. Yeah, it's it's a remarkable development, and I think it's causing real problems, real questions for Mr. Mm. Putin. Uh, this counteroffensive, by the way, was meticulously planned over a long period of time, and uh, of course the impact was dramatic. It was launched on first of September, but it was many months in the planning. And going back to our previous <laughs> discussions, we were remarking about why the Ukrainians were targeting Russian generals. Mm. Well, that created a particularly for an authoritarian regime led by Mr. Putin, that created some dislocation in the uh, chain of command within the Russian military. And so that was a bit of a background factor that the Ukrainians were working on for some time. Mm. And then, in addition, uh, they had this strategic feint where they announced uncharacteristically in June that they were going to target Kherson. And yeah. this kept on going. I think they made one press conference after another saying, oh, yes, we're when going we get to, to Kershaw, in, in a couple yes. of months' time, we're going to target Kherson. Yeah. And everyone was expecting it in August. And, of course, eventually it arrived uh, 1st of September. The, there was a counteroffensive in Kherson, and it's continuing. But well, the, same, the same person who criticised me for using the word salient said, and it wasn't a feint, it's going on now. And, of course, I know that, but there was a sort of, uh, yeah, but it say, was, a kind it of was propaganda actually, feint. Yeah. It was a, a classic Clausewitzian feint in the sense mm. that the counteroffensive, um, the, the announcement of it, lured more than 10,000 Russian troops from Kharkiv into Kherson. Kherson Oblast, yeah. And, of course, as soon as that was completed, then they did two things. First of all, they they sealed off Kherson by blowing up all the bridges around it, which means now some of Russia's best troops are holed up with little supplies and no chance of getting out, quite frankly. Mm. And then, of course, they extended the counteroffensive to Kharkiv to to punch through the weakened defence lines which had been left diminished by the transfer of those troops. Yeah. Uh, it was a classic one, too, in many respects. And um, it, it's been hugely effective. They've captured more than, it appears like, more than 9,000 square kilometres of territory. Uh, they've liberated um, something like 150,000 Ukrainians previously under Russian occupation. And unfortunately, we're beginning to get awful stories of really grotesque treatment by the Russians of yeah. the local population. Well, that, although that it, it is, you know, in Izium, they found that uh, grave site of 400, allegedly 400, 400 people. That, of course, doesn't necessarily mean that they weren't just killed by artillery and, you know, normal no, war as opposed uh, to torture. There, there are some telltale signs of executions and also um, <clears throat> torture, unfortunately. Yeah. But... Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, your your question was about whether it keeps going. I think the Ukrainians feel they've got the momentum mm. and they've made very good use of uh, weaponry from the United States and its allies. Uh, the Brits and the Germans have played quite a big uh, role here. Uh, perhaps the Germans could do more. I think that's the view in the Ukraine. Definitely. Um, so most uh, of you in Europe, isn't it? I, I was reading The Economist on this today, so they were saying that the, the training, I mean, this is where New Zealand comes in, of course, yeah. that the training to um, Ukrainian troops that's been done in Poland and the UK has been absolutely superb and, and really pivotal in making those, 
you know, because and one of the points that the Economist made, which was which was quite valid, and I hadn't really thought about that much, was that the Russians sent in two hundred thousand troops, many of them uh, conscripts who didn't really quite know where they were going and who weren't really That's intended right. to yeah. be thrown into an actual, which is one of the reasons they haven't called it a war, of course. Right. But you've got the essentially the entire male population of Ukraine on the other side. Yeah, and that that's true. And I think one of the interesting things about the counteroffensive is that I do not see the Ukrainians letting up. They feel that they've got uh, the Russian military, which is by all accounts demoralized, poorly trained, as you just pointed out, and on the run. They've also captured a huge amount of equipment. Mm. I mean, uh, they in in that counteroffensive alone so far, they've captured more than fifty tanks, which is more tanks than Denmark has. So, <laughs> it, 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 130, 147 armoured personnel carriers. Mm. And, of course, they're putting them immediately to work. We're talking literally Mr Putin has lost. Has, has, what has given billions, has effectively given billions in military yeah. equipment. Yeah. And, yeah. of course, this is not going down well with the Russian military or the FSB. Tell us about that, so, uh, Robert, in terms of the domestic dissent, which seems to be you know, yeah. dri dribbling up to the surface. Um, it's hard to know exactly how real it is, but there's something going on there. Yeah, I, I, because at the moment, the, there's a growing recognition that Russia has suffered a huge defeat. The reaction to it is it's mixed. On the one hand, there are those voices beginning to make themselves felt in the Russian state media, saying, look, we've just got to face the fact that we're up against a formidable army and we should, one is, you know, one, one uh, speaker suggested that they sit down and talk with the Ukrainians. But interestingly, the attempt at diplomacy by the Putin government, the Putin government did table, according to the Ukrainian deputy prime minister, after the few, first few days of the successful counteroffensive around Kharkiv, the Russians attempted to slow it by suggesting some sort of negotiations. Mm. But, of course, they were abruptly waved away by the Ukrainians who saw through that scheme immediately, or they said they saw through it, which was they saw it as an attempt to basically stall the, you know, um, the offensive, the counteroffensive by the Ukrainians. So there's been one reaction in the Russian media, which is, look, look, Mr. Putin must have been badly informed We've got it, it was wrong. Badly advised we, the badly advised. Yeah, we need to come to terms with it. it. Yeah. But then there's the hard line response. Uh, Mr. Putin, of course, <laughs> in order to sell the invasion or the special military operations, he likes to call it, to the Russian people, he really went. He did some overdrive on nationalist rhetoric. Mm. But what? The, but unfortunately for him, what that means is some of the ultra nationalists, like Igor Gherkin, for example, are now saying. Putin should go, but we should have someone who would do the job properly. Mm, stop, mm. you know, stop mucking you around in Ukraine. Let's yeah, you've got Ukraine, kind of saying let's, let, let's, let's declare uh, a proper war. So you just, yeah. In the last 24 hours, for example, there was a session of ultra-nationalists saying on Russian state TV, let's uh, cut off all power mm. and, and heating in, in Ukraine and engineer the exodus of 20 million yeah, Ukrainians. Yeah to the EU. The cunning devils. Yeah. yeah, I mean, of course, this is completely delusional nonsense, but the, it's interesting. Um, I, I think it's getting dangerous for Putin. I, he certainly, in my view, will not survive uh, the further ejection of Russian troops. And that could happen. Mm. You know, the, the funny the thing about this is I don't know why so many people have been surprised that 
this authoritarian kleptocratic regime um his military has not been as you know it's been overestimated clearly mm. and the thing about momentum in conflict it, it once you've got it um it's not easy to reverse and yeah. uh, to me i think russia could be facing collapse in, um, in eastern interesting ukraine interesting one, one one question that um one of our uh guests uh Sorry, John Irving was suggesting, and I, and I read something about this myself today uh, about whether whether the Ukrainians get close enough to start lobbing things into Russian territory, actual Russia itself. That's, ha that's happened. Yeah, but my sense is that they're not going to use any of the NATO weapons to do that because that that would be, um, you know, triggering something really big if they start using high miles or something to go to Belgorod or, you know, firing into firing the particular NATO weapons into those areas. You're going to get some. Serious reaction. Well, they that <laughs> they'll be looking for plausible denial. It doesn't mean mm. they won't be using them, though. Mm. I mean, I I actually think the Ukrainians are incredibly, um, uh, how should I put it, matter of fact about how they're dealing with the Russians. I was struck when uh, Mr. Putin made some pretty severe threats recently. Uh, President Zelensky mocked him, saying, "Look, you're weaklings. You're weaklings in the Kremlin. You, yeah. All you can do is distant punishment." You can lob your missiles and artillery, smash up civilian infrastructure, but you get out, your, your guys can't actually fight. Yeah. You know, and it was interesting to me that Zelensky is clearly appealing to an audience beyond Putin in, in Russia. Um, it, it's, you know, none of us can predict what happens. I suppose the best case for Putin is to hope that the Russian military manages to consolidate and stop the rot. Um, yeah, well, there's no evidence of that, though, is there? Particularly since the Russian military, according to very reliable reports, are not allowing any more replacements to go in to Ukraine. Mm. That's the thing that um, strikes me, is that uh, Putin has, has, has stopped short of declaring a full militarisation and conscription and the likes, because he realises he's, he's got a bit of a weakness there, and not everyone's completely on board with this. Uh, yeah. do, do you think, uh, how, how do you think the meeting with, um, with Xi Jinping went uh, overnight? And uh, does that change the landscape at all in terms of, you know, how much strength is behind Putin? It was mixed, I think. Um, you know, Michael McFall, uh, who I've got a lot of time for, the former US ambassador to uh, Russia, made the point that actually... Mr. Xi Jinping basically agreed to continue buying Russian fuel and gas that knocked down and prices, yeah. and that's about it. <laughs> and he said that Putin looked a broken and somewhat um, isolated figure. I'm not sure that's entirely true, but uh, well, there's you know, also the, the, quote, the Chinese. Well, that, uh, there's also the, the quote from Putin that 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 they've listened to and understood the Chinese questions and concerns. Whatever yeah. that means. Well, I think China behind the scenes is extremely worried, as they should be, because, uh, you know, if they go further in their support, there's no indication they are stepping up military support mm -hmm. for Russia. And they know that if they do, and our Biden administration has warned the Chinese, they've said, look, if you pitch in behind the Russians, don't forget your rise to power as a superpower. And we helped you do this, China. This is the Americans. Mm -hmm. Um, is dependent on the world capitalist system and your exports um, will be affected if you get full square behind the Russians in this illegal invasion. Mm. 
and I think the Chinese are trying to have it both ways. So they're trying to say to Putin, "Well, you know, we we we're behind you. Uh, we understand your security concerns, but that we are limited in what we can do. Except yeah. uh, strike very good deals with you and see our uh, our exports <laughs> go up massively to to uh, Russia. In in a sense, Robert, I thought it was really interesting today. Quite exploitive him. The IAEA did something that was very unusual." To me, the, the board of I think it was the of the I, I, uh, IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, put out a statement um, saying that they thought Russia should, should surrender and withdraw from the Zaporizhia uh, yeah. nuclear power station. And this sort of goes to a to, to a question that um, one of the more Russian supporting uh, people that I've been um, getting emails from about alleging that I'm writing propaganda raised, which <laughs> which is that you know how, how do we you know why didn't the IAEA do more to say who was lobbying in the you know lobbying in the weapons lobbying in the um, and of course that isn't the IAEA said it would never say anything about this but clearly by asking the Russians to withdraw. They are they are explaining who's really triggering this. Yes, they didn't believe the thesis about the, the Russian missiles, which apparently did a U-turn know, when they arrived. Clever. Yeah, uh, apparently they didn't they didn't find that persuasive. More, more cunning devils. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm wondering too, uh, Robert, about that uh, the Chinese connection there, because Xi has this very important meeting coming up next month, where he gets confirmed as leader for life in theory. Mm. And has some the biggest economic challenge for him yeah. in his term in charge, which also uh, restricts his ability to you know be too um, helpful to Russia. A, as you point out, it's a great opportunity to get a good deal on oil and oil and gas yeah. uh, to help his economy, which is really grinding at the moment mm. under the weight of a an implosion of its property development sector and still these uh, these COVID issues. Uh, do, do you think that that's part of the reason Xi hasn't been quite so sort of uh, I'm all with you and in with you, um, Vlad? Well, I, I do think he is, you know, the bottom line is for all Chinese leaders um, is that they've got to keep delivering economic growth. Mm. There's an informal contract between uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which runs the country on a monopoly basis, in return for letting us rule, we're delivering economic growth. And that deal's worked very nicely, thank you, since 1978. But um, if Xi Jinping, by um, forcibly supporting Mr. Putin, uh, include military support and intelligence support, um, if he goes to that degree, he could put it in jeopardy, that totally in jeopardy, yeah. contract. And uh, I, I think he'd be <clears throat> loath to do that. And... Uh, the other thing here is, though, Xi Jinping, I think his views are rejected by other members of the Central Committee. I, I don't think there's any consensus there. There are hardliners. I saw one China, senior Chinese legislator who's gone much further than um, his name is Li Zhangxu, uh, and he's gone much further than uh, Xi Jinping has in supporting Russia, saying they fully understand um uh, Russia's concerns and NATO shouldn't have beaten its way up to mm. the back door of Russia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But there are other Chinese leaders that are much more circumspect. Yeah, the interesting thing here is we have to look at the other side of this balancing act for Xi Jinping. Um, he, he, you know, his nightmare scenario actually, I think, one of his, you know, one of the problems he worries about 
is the collapse of the Russian army and is the full ejection of Russian troops because mm. he believes, or some of the people around him believe, that will mean that the West will be resurgent and that he can forget it was certainly it was certainly cut across Xi Jinping's narrative that the West is failing. If Mr. Putin has succeeded in mobilizing NATO, NATO's enlarged, of course, and if the tr Russian troops are ejected and Putin loses power and China has actually been seen on to be on the wrong side, that's going to be bad yeah. news for China. But do you think, are we, are we all being too confident about the conf confidence in the Ukrainians? You know, and and the, and the risk of a backlash here, and the risk of a, you know, the, that was why I made the sort of salient point or point about the salient in my in my spin-off thing, is this the the risk of the Russians pushing pushing back? Well, I think that I, I think uh, there is a risk of the Russians pushing back, but they've got to improve. They've got to show an improved military performance, which they haven't to to date shown. Mm. And there's no there's no evidence that they're dealing with problems of morale and no, alienation no, no. also peter and bernard the russians have lost close to fifty thousand troops dead mm, yeah. and, and even in authoritarian state that's going to have three times the number in they Russia. lost in the three times that's why he's not, coming back to bernard's point about mobilization that's why he's not mobilizing yeah i don't know whether you saw the fantastic prigozhin uh you know uh prigozhin as the is as putin's caterer putin's restaurateur putin's chef uh, and also the control of the wagner group trying to recruit people from um right. gulags and asylums and promising them that they would be um well rewarded and their sentences commuted for this but they would also be shot if they tried to withdraw <laughs> it was a fantastic bit of confidence no, not one step back. Oh, that's 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 Russian HR. You know, that's a yeah. book you could write about that. Bernard, go ahead. I'm sorry, you wanted <laughs> to close. Right. Uh, just finally, uh, uh, Robert, uh, before you have to head off, uh, we've got the UN General Assembly uh, next week. Yeah. Um, the Prime Minister is obviously going to the Queen's funeral uh, at the moment, and then after that we'll go on to New York. Uh, the big topic uh, around China, at least, and one I wonder if, if we'll get stuck in the middle of, is uh, the Human Rights Commission report into the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, and whether or not we'll get pulled into a group who'll try to embarrass um, China at the UN General Assembly. Yes, it's going to be a test of our diplomacy, isn't it? Um, the thing is, though, I do think it's an issue which the government feels strongly about because the Prime Minister has repeatedly said, as has the Foreign Minister, this issue has been raised privately with the Chinese repeatedly. So I don't think the government can back away from the issue if it becomes much, much more public. Uh, our members, our colleagues in the Five Eyes, the other allies in the Five Eyes Partnership, of course, have been much more outspoken. We've declined to go down that route, saying this is something it may not help the Uyghurs by, you know, embarrassing the Chinese publicly, but we can certainly let them know in private. But, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting situation. Um, the, it, you know, obviously that the whole question of human rights is in Chinese hands. I mean, it could make concerted efforts to improve its human rights performance, but that, of course, would cut across it's uh, it's monopoly of political power that the ruling party has because that has decentralization implications i i think that's going to be one of the issues the prime minister is going to be concerned about i think there's some other issues of course 
um, that we're concerned about as well. Robert Petman um, from the University of Otago, thank you very much for being on the Hoon again. Thank you. Lo- lovely to have you back. Good. Thanks very much. Cheers. Cheers for now. See you, Robert. And, Bye. And uh, that was our lap around the world. In uh, I'm always tempted with Robert to do the to do the Monty Python thing of, can I call you Bobby? <laughs> You know, Bobby, Robert, Bobbo. Bob, yeah, no, you may not. No, yeah. no. Um, if, really... if younger people don't know that sketch, sketch, it's well worth looking at on uh, YouTube. It's Can I fun. call you Eddie? Eddie, baby. Yes, carry on. What's What's amazing about the Monty Python <coughs> stuff is that it's getting a second wind. My 19-year-old daughter is a mad fan. Mm. And, uh, of course, it's all being um, rediscovered through YouTube. And, uh, and if you and if you watched um, the ridiculous video of Prince Charles getting ratty about the the fountain pen not working in uh, in Northern Ireland, I mean it really does look like John Cleese walking into the into the argument sketch. This is that king you're talking about here. Uh, yeah, or the minister of yeah, the the king of silly walks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we've got some um, questions coming through here, and please uh, feel free to throw your questions into the Q&A. We've got about 10 minutes uh, left, and uh, there were a couple of questions in there, in particular one about whether or not the Russian, the, the, um, the Europeans would stay united this winter under the pressure of Russia cutting off its uh, gas. Well, the Europeans have reacted quite strongly Um, over the last month or so to prepare for a winter without Russian gas. They actually initially thought that they would still have the gas through the winter, but Mm. um, their backstop was to basically madly fill any uh, storage facilities they had and to ensure that they got LNG into the one or two facilities in Europe that can handle it. So they have been out there buying LNG like mad in the Middle East and in Asia, including from Australia, as well as storing up gas. And the last I saw, they had uh, nearly 90% uh, capacity for the gas. Yeah, it was very interesting, Bernard. There was a very good story in the, F- in the FT yesterday also from the US uh, shale oil and gas people saying that they just absolutely cannot uh, solve the problem by producing even more than they already are. Because, of course, they are, <laughs> you know, they, as you know, they are grotesquely over-invested in shale gas and so the private equity and people who own them want to exploit the high prices to get some revenue out of them. They do not want to expand production to the point where it starts to uh, reduce reduce um, uh, reduce prices. You know, and Saudi Arabia, of course, is um, very happy to. Did you? <laughs> it was laughable that uh, maybe we discussed this last week. I've got a, I've got a slight uh, deja vu feeling about this. That you know, the OPEC announces a hundred hundred thousand uh, barrels a day reduction. In output, just to keep the just to keep nudging on the price and send a little fuck you to Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing about the shale gas and oil is that <coughs> uh, they got burnt so badly when they overinvested, and right now is seen as um, the the time when you make hay when the sun is shining if you're an investor in those mm. markets. And uh, also, I mean, the, the Americans have got the same problems we have uh, that they don't have enough people. You know, if you're going to scale up your oil and gas sector, you've got to employ a bunch of extra people mm. who are skilled, and they don't have that either. And and also, it's interesting that, um, sure, uh, the Texases of the world are still pretty mad in favour of oil and gas, but there's a few states, particularly in the upper Midwesty areas, that are starting to wonder whether this is a good idea. Um, and uh, w- we'll see uh, whether the Americans can help much. 
think yeah, so. which makes it quite interesting that the UK, that, that there's one of Liz Truss's first acts is to um, lift the moratorium on fracking in the UK, and they're they're talking about changing the um, threshold for earthquakes. You know, like that you have to shut down if an earthquake is caused from 0.5 on the Richter scale to three, which, given that the Richter scale is exponential, is quite a and, and also that the UK is very very highly built upon. It's I mean, just, I'm actually a bit of a fan of fracking from the point of view of using gas as a as a transitional thing to um, you know to um, yeah. towards net zero. But uh, anyway, that's that's not an entirely popular view on this bloody socialist podcast. No, no, and there is a, there is an argument that you can use some of the um, big space that you open up mm. underneath the ground to pump in uh, carbon um, dioxide and various other things. But um, often the argument about well, we'll just use gas is um, often a way to avoid mm. the tough decisions. But um, that is interesting too. I think the question, we've got a question here from Stephen uh, asking about uh, whether we should regret closing Marsden. I, I think so. Yes. I think uh, the decision about you know not worrying about the strategic implications was made before uh, the Ukraine situation. And I know the Australians are having deep sec- second thoughts about uh, having to rely on just one or two refineries in their own country and having to rely on ships coming through the dispute. Yeah, it's kind of interesting, Bernard. I was thinking about this this week, both, both about Marston Point uh, and about the Carwell, um mill lockout. And also with the death this week of the former um, chief of the uh, Federation of Labour in New Zealand. Um, the days when you would have a strike going on for five weeks and the government wouldn't intervene or the FOL wouldn't intervene or the docks wouldn't have shut down as well are well gone. <laughs> but you've got a government that's very interventionist in the economy in certain respects, but we no longer have that kind of inter, uh, understanding that, it, that it's a government's job to intervene in those kind of even strategic questions, let alone union yeah, questions. I mean, this is a big question we, we've got around the world now. As we get into an, a war economy, and the Europeans are having to confront this right now, they're mm. having to make decisions about who gets the gas, who gets the coal, um, how do you ration it, how do you intervene to cap a price? This is what happened during the war, and we've got a good question from... David uh, in the chat about, um, you know, if you're going to uh, look at... Ah, like well, so this is... A, I, have you got the answer to this, Bernard? Because I do have mostly the answer to this one to some extent. Yeah, well, if you're going to uh, force windfall taxes on renewable generation, which is what the um, uh, what the Europeans are having to think about, one way to get around this issue <coughs> is to say, well, instead of forcing you to give us your money in windfall taxes... We're going to force you to use that money to build more renewable um, uh, wind and uh, and solar. And one of the problems we've still got here in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, is that with TY Point's future still up in the air, the big power companies are still not really committing themselves no. to, to building lots of uh, oil and gas. Sorry, you you go for it. So that's how no, I. No, no, no. But they're also they're not committing to building hydro either. You know, I just, I, I think this is this whole solar battery, th- I mean, sorry, hydro battery thing. I don't know. I just think New Zealand has got has got its head up its own bottom a little bit about its, about infrastructure and some of these strategic questions. And this you know, is- maybe, maybe, maybe Jacinda being in the UK might help us see that it's, uh, you know, that that cutting back on exploration or limiting it, limiting offshore exploration is not necessarily the right thing to do, even if it makes you feel good from a green point of view at the moment when you've got a green coalition. Or had a green coalition. Yeah, I mean, she can take the Greens for granted. That's what's happened for six years, and you might as well just um, go for it. And particularly at the moment where, you know, higher prices, 
particularly for um, petrol, are putting pre- pressure on people's um, uh, wallets. The, the, she it's might funny how this wallet. isn't, none of this is either or, is it? It's all, you know, we need to be doing all of these things at once. That's right. And unfortunately for the Prime Minister, she has <coughs> cordoned off a whole bunch of policy options by ruling them out uh, mm. for, in her political lifetime. And I still think that a core decision that will need to be made in the next three or four months by the government is whether or not the Prime Minister will lead Labour into the next election. Uh, at the moment, uh, with the latest polls suggesting that it's still very tight, um, although the Curia poll that came out this week showed that National and Act again could govern alone on those numbers from the Curia poll, and also that the Prime Minister's personal popularity had dropped while Luxon's had risen again. So, yeah, but hers is still very. Hers is still. I mean, it looks like she would actually do extremely well if she if she went over to national. <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure about that. She's not the most loved person on that side of this political spectrum, but it is. Um, I think that's a decision that will have to be made. She may have already made it, uh, and I don't know anything in particular. But uh, on these issues of you know, should we invest in infrastructure? How do we organise ourselves? Should we intervene in markets? Um, we're obviously not in a war economy situation. If you're in Germany... Or- well, we are. We're in a global... You know, we, 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 I mean, we're in an incredibly advantageous situation at the moment, but we need to be looking around us and thinking, hang on a minute, you know, what do we need, what do we need to do to be secure? I mean, that is the, the, the government's first job is, for, is security, of course. Yeah. And, and it includes and- security of, of, you know, logistics and security of uh, energy. Exactly. And we can't just ignore the rest of the world. There's this idea that, you know, we're two islands, long way from anywhere. There are no power cords between us and Australia. And uh, therefore, we can sort of exist um, buying each other's houses every now and again. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's a bit of, you know, you and I talk about this quite a lot sometimes, even even over fishing ships, looking at that, looking out at the sea. Uh, And, you know, there is a risk of this being a no growth economy. And And a no growth economy is not is not going to help. Uh, uh, neglected sectors uh, and colonialism-affected sectors of the New Zealand society. Well, that's the assumption that you have to use growth to oh, pay. For- Julian's suggesting that I sound like a hawkish Tory. I think could be <laughs> further from the truth. But, I mean, this idea that the only way you can pay to improve um, well-being in various parts of the economy is to essentially always have growth. Well, mm. the other way is to simply redistribute income and wealth. And, Jesus Christ, Bernard. Steady on. And, you know, this this is going to be, again, the core issue in our election next year. And that's why I think um, the Prime Minister has a problem and that she's cordoned all that off in a way that the rest of her cabinet haven't and that Grant Robertson haven't either. So um, we'll see how that goes. Peter, it's time for the skateboarding dog. You you have an extraordinary story that I had missed and I think... I do, you mean the, do you mean the football one? Yes, yeah, it's it's a very it's a it's a lovely story which I'll put into the thing, and it's so where I live in Spain or where I go to in Spain, which I know sounds fucking manky saying that. I'm sorry about that, but um, Cadiz is my local team. Oh, really? And oh. Yeah, yeah. And this this week at Cadiz, uh, a fan on the Cadiz side uh, started having a, a, a cardiac arrest and heart attack, and the and the um, goalie, the Cadiz goalie, leapt out of the. Uh, out of his out of his box and rats sprinted across to the Barcelona bench because they were playing Barcelona, where the um, the physiotherapist from Barcelona threw him a defibrillator. Wow! And the, you know he ran back to the thing and the guy was um, uh, had died 
and was revived and uh, and and was fun. Antonio, Antonio, a sixty-year-old Kitters season ticket holder, um, you know, died died on the field but survived, as it were, wow, was revived. That's that's amazing. Isn't that a great story? Because yeah. um, Cadiz versus Barcelona, that would be a huge game. I'm guessing he would have been quite excited and that might not have helped his heart. I imagine so. I imagine so. I mean, Cadiz is not a terribly... Well, I hate, I hate to say this because people at home will kill me, but um, Cadiz, is, are not, Cadiz is not quite as good as Barcelona. No, what an extraordinary story. And the other one mm. was, and I love this, um, we get some amazing pictures out of Ukraine. Now, obviously... Oh, of them is, do you mean, oh, have you got the link, Bernard? Are you going to put the link up for everybody? Uh, while you're talking about it, I will find it. Yeah, so it's a wonderful. It's a, I mean, I spend far too much time looking at um, <laughs> what's called OSINT, um, which is open, open, open source uh, intelligence on things like Ukraine. And there's a wonderful TikTok video, which is on Twitter, but is on from TikTok, of a fast-moving Ukrainian light vehicle zooming uh, towards the Russians and coming to a screeching halt with a hedgehog crossing the road in front of it. And a um, Ukrainian soldier gets out wearing sneakers and and shorts and a t-shirt, I might add, and pushes the um, offending hedgehog off. Because of course, you know, here we would just run it over, knowing that hedgehogs aren't aren't native. But um, it was a very very cute video. You got it there, Bernard? I have not found it. I'm afraid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm a little bit worried that one of the hedgehogs will be like a. A particular type of tank called the <laughs> No, 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 no. Here we go. Do you want me to play it? Yes, yes, please. Hang on. So if you share your screen, you'll be able to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, share my screen. Or did I block you from sharing the screen? Hang on. Yeah, I think you have. Oh. Here, I'll give you the link if everybody wants to watch this. It is bloody funny. Mind you, everybody's going to be wanting to go and watch the 6 o'clock news to find out how many thousand people are are uh, watching the Queen. And in the queue, yes, that's right. Yeah, God, can I just, some of the coverage, I mean, I, it's entirely justified, as I said, I've got. I've just sent you the link to that. Thank you. So it's, most of it's entirely justified, but it is getting a tiny bit exhausting, particularly um, poor old Corin Dan trying to find anybody with any connection to New Zealand somewhere in an eight-kilometre uh, queue. And I'm sort of a little bit... Um concerned that uh, you and I have not been paid by someone to go and cover the funeral. It seems that every other journalist in New Zealand right now is, is over there. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think it's important, but I, I just, I'd like to, you know, it'd be good if they just uh, did a little bit of more work on it. Anyway, have you got that video? Yes, I do. And here we go, go out to that video. We're, we're going to show it uh, here. And we could play the jazzy music as we close, if you want. I so, Kikeano, Bernard. Yes. Uh, let me just... Um, Put this up here now. I hope we can see it. And uh, let's see if I can do this. I thought I was, um, no, it's the wrong one. I'm sorry about this, folks. This will take a moment. Uh, Christ, this, can we get your highly, pla highly played glamorous producer onto this? We do need. Uh, Where is she? We do need to do this at some, oh, here we go. Yep. We do need, um, or he, could be, could be uh, he. No, no, no. We want a glamorous producer. Thank you. Yes. Uh, uh, right. Let me just uh, let me just play this now. I thought I had it. Um, grr, uh, exit. Here we go. Here you go. There you go. Right. Let's let's hear this. So he sees the hedgehog. Yeah. At least he's got a camouflage T-shirt on. That's true. In shorts. And red and red sneakers. I just I just think it's absolutely fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Good. And then he loves well, uh, it. <laughs> I love it. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. All right. Thank you, Bernard. Thank, thank you, everyone. Great to see you all. And we'll see you all next Friday. Lucky down, Mark.